Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today I'll be speaking with Kimberly Fain, author of the book Black Hollywood, From Butlers to Superheroes, The Changing Role of African American Men in Movies, published in 2015 by Prager. In her book, she reviews African American male roles decade by decade, highlighting specific films that often presented the black man in terrible stereotypes and shows how the kinds of parts available to them shifted over time. In addition, Kim discusses black actors who were also social activists to see whether they were hindered by their political work. Welcome to Kimberly Fain. Hi, Kimberly. It's great to talk to you. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? I'm fine. Um, Your book wonderfully reviews how African-American men were portrayed over the reasonably short history of film. I mean talking not much more than 100 years, and yet there's a, already a long and deep history that we can talk about. But let's start with some background. Since the podcast is devoted to authors, I always like to learn something about what leads people to specific writing projects. What are your own personal educational and writing experiences? Um, well, um, initially, I got my bachelor's degree from Texas A&M University in English, um, and then I took a detour and decided to get my Doctor of Jurisprudence in Law at Thurgood Marshall School of Law um, and at Texas University. Uh, and then I decided that I still loved writing and researching. And so I decided to go back and get my Master's of English uh, from Texas Southern University as well. Um, although I, have, I am licensed an attorney, um, I continue to teach English. Um, I taught at Texas Southern University, and then I also taught. In, I teach, currently teach English at Houston Community College. Um, I have about, I, I would say, at least eighteen publications, uh, two of them books, and so it just writing continues to be a fascination and love of mine. But what led you to this particular topic? How did you come up with this uh, subject? I think you you wrote something about this already in some of your other uh, shorter work. So what made you decide that it, it, it was worth trying to develop into a book? Well, Spike Lee has always been a favorite of mine in terms of his movies. I would definitely say my favorite director. And so I wrote a chapter, Spike Lee, Rise, Success, and Doing the Right Thing, uh, for a book, Star Power, The Impact of Brand of Celebrity. And I thought that, because I enjoyed the process so much, I thought, wow, I'd like to expand this into an entire book. And I contacted Edgar, and it seemed as though someone was already contracted to do Spike Lee, an entire book. So um, after speaking with my, well, which would be my future editor, um, the acquisition editor, Rebecca Matheson, she suggested how about something a little more comprehensive that covers more directors? Um, 
and filmmakers. So I said, okay. Um, and I decided to uh, picture an idea. Um, and what I became focused on is I said, you know what? I'm really fascinated by the black male image, which is one of the things that Spike Lee focuses on. Um, and I said, I really am interested and fascinated with um, the treatment of the black man, male image from 1910s all the way to the 2010s. Um, so I decided to pitch this idea of um, the image and how the black male image is idealized yet demonized at the same time in pop culture and film. And she accepted it. And we decided to name it Black Hollywood from Butlers to Superheroes, The Changing Role of African-American Men in the Movies. Um, and so what started out to be just a focus on one filmmaker um, became something where I focused on um, a lot of filmmakers. And this became a comprehensive study of just uh, black male in film over a hundred year period. Obviously, it's an overview to a. I mean, it's, it's an overview of, of the genre, or not the genre, the the concept from like we pointed out over a hundred years. But did you do any specific research? Were you able to talk to anybody, or is this mostly built over your own reading of other authors on the topic and your own viewing of the various films and film projects? Well, definitely, I wanted this to be uh, something that covered several genres: um, African American studies at film history, pop culture. And so because this is history-based, um, you have a situation where you have a lot of people that are not even alive. Um, and then you have others, as I get to the latter portion, um, where people are still alive. But I did want, didn't really want to focus on um, what individuals might perceive their role to be as much as I wanted this to be research-based. And I wanted to... Um, basically put together the work of scholars, the work of critics, um, and include awards, reviews, and put that in as my study so that I could avoid any type of biases that sometimes come with interviewing and interacting with a performer and growing to like the person. And then in that case, you might not really criticize their work objectively. No, when I was teaching more regularly, I always told students that a primary source is great, but it's still it's got it has its bi it could have its biases built in as well. I mean, a memoir is going to be if it's an autobiography, it's probably going to make the person sound as good as possible because they're writing it. So I agree with you that sometimes while interviews can be great, and I've interviewed a number of authors who have built their books around interviews. In this case, you're right, given the uh, time periods um, and the, the synthesis is probably a more logical way, at least in this particular case. Now the topic has been subject. I mean, we've, we've seen books about uh, African-American in the movies before, but what did you decide to, how did you decide to focus your work to, you know, to make your specific points that you wanted to make? Well, one of the things when I was, uh, researching, I noticed that a lot of the books focused on exploitation of blacks and how blacks were manipulated, taken advantage of, um, how they did not receive uh, the amount of money that they should have for their work. And I wanted to know where where are the victors? Where are um, the trailblazers now? 
and were there performers, black actors, filmmakers who actually were happy with how their careers turned out. And so that's how I decided to focus on empowerment, the success stories. Who were the trailblazers that actually took agency of their work where there was a certain image that they had to work with to get into the business. And then as time went on, they began to reconstruct and shape that image because they went from being an actor to becoming a producer, executive producer, writer. Um, And that's why I focus as time goes on, I begin to focus on Spike Lee, Tyler Perry, Will Smith, because they act in their work as well as, produce and with Tyler Perry and Spike Lee they direct and write and a lot of people are not really familiar um, with how successful Overbrook Entertainment is with Will uh, Smith um, Tyler Perry Productions um, and 40 Acres in the Mule with Spike Lee many people are not aware of how successful they have been with Tyler Perry Productions and Overbrook uh, their films have made an excess of billions of dollars. Not only that, but I like to focus in this book how different people have become stars from starring in movies that are made by African Americans. So that is one of the areas where I try to be different by focusing on empowering inspirational stories of also how they made social, economic, and political change. Um, instead of just focusing on the negativity. I really didn't want to focus on what went wrong, but I try to show what went right with their careers as well. And we'll talk about the more current ones later, but you're absolutely right. Did did you find that some, of, especially the, the, the more current filmmakers, do they consciously or even unconsciously sort of uh, refer back to older, you know, situations and older uh, for older uh, African American actors and roles. I mean, obviously, we know Spike Lee's in particular tend to be very. He's very usually. Uh, many of his films have a historical basis to them. But did you see a theme more with some of the more current filmmakers that sort of referred back to some of the older films that maybe weren't as um, well, didn't portray African-American men so well? Um, I think that it just, it seems like all of all of the various filmmakers try to pay homage to a certain extent and then add their own twist on. Um, one of the things I noticed with the 1990s, uh, when you have the rise of gangster rap films, um, there are different times where you will see them try to make a tribute to uh, 1970s black exploitation performers, um, and then you also have uh, when you get to the 2000s, you have various people, Robert Townsend, Keenan Ivory, Ivory Wayans, who intentionally uh, try to put some of those actors for, from the past um, in their films, even if it's for a cameo role. So there's always this acknowledgement that the early African-American actors from 1910s to 1950s, um, they opened the doors. So there's a homage and there's a respect paid to that. But at the same time, there is, that was the past, and now we are moving towards the future, and there's some differences and changes that we want to to make. 
The other thing before we, I have some squat. I want to talk a little bit about specific parts of the book, but it's the kind of thing that sometimes, depending on the book, the cover of the book is particularly uh, striking in this particular case. And the good thing is it'll appear in the podcast listing, so the cover will appear. So I think it's worth talking about it briefly because we've got basically three people on the cover. Will Smith, of course, in color in the biggest part, and then below him, two smaller pictures to the left, Step and Fetch It, and to the right, uh, Sidney Poitier. But those are in black and white and a little less, obviously, striking. I don't know whether you had anything to do with the cover, you know, whether you were given the ability to um, um, approve or at least comment on the cover, but I think the cover in particular is does a pretty good job, I think, of sort of, you know, getting with your themes of how the more current actors have a lot to um, thank, be thankful for, frankly, for some of the things that the older actors did. No, I completely agree. Um, actually, originally, um, what was proposed to me from the marketing team was the, the picture of James Basquette and um, in the the picture came from Song of the South. And I didn't really feel like that cover really depicted the theme of our title because we had already come up with the title uh, for the beginning. And so I said, you know, I really don't really like this particular black and white image. How about Step and Fetch It? Um, he should be on the cover. Um, and I also liked images of Sidney Poitier. So I also talked to my husband, Anthony Johnson, who is he's a marketing guru, and he helped me come up with a different idea to propose to them. And they went back to the drawing board, came up with something um, that included what we wanted, which is the early beginnings and then an image that reflected um, the whole concept of superheroes. And this is the image that the marketing team came up with. So it was a combined effort, I think, with the marketing team and with us, um, my husband and I, to have something that was very reflective of the title. You clearly prove something to other authors. Make sure you have somebody who is involved in marketing somewhere in your life to bounce ideas off of. Because (laughs) in this case, I couldn't see how that definitely makes, I mean, I could just see how this book would just sort of pop out in a bookstore, for example, or just in somebody just looking at covers because of, especially, you know, you use the color of Will Smith, uh, you know, that image is in color and then the other two are in black and white, but it, it just, it does really pop, which is the term that gets used. So anyway, I do like to ask about that sometimes, especially when you've got a cover like this, which is so striking. Now, obviously you reviewed the films and, and the, the topics chronologically. And it seems to me for what you were trying to do, that makes sense. Uh, did you ever consider it any other way or were you pretty much figuring chronological was the lot was the best way to handle this, this subject? Well, initially I began to uh, just notice that certain actors uh, or filmmakers were more prominent in certain decades. And so although you have someone like Stephen Fetchett, whose career Um, expanded over several decades, there was a certain time period where he was a height. Um, And so I definitely decided, okay, I think that the 1940s, that was a time where 
you know, Bojangles and Seven Fetchit were at their peak. And so I looked at what their peak decade was. And then after I decided who I wanted to cover and I decided the peak decade, it only seemed natural to put it in chronological order. Um, And also I wanted to connect uh, one chapter to the next. So I noticed that in some cases you have actors who were, as we spoke about earlier, influenced by an actor of an earlier decade. And in some cases they were friends with that actor from an earlier decade. Uh, You have, for example, Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. Um, They were influenced by Paul Robeson and Canada Lee. And so um, it was important to mention, I guess, to connect the significance. um, Because if you really want to connect the significance of their performance and how one actor opened the door for another, it only makes sense to put it in chronological order. I keep going back and forth, but I want to ask questions based on what you say, and then we'll cover some of the other topics as we go. But did you find, especially in certain periods that you reviewed, that the, for lack of a better way, the political aspect of African-American actors is so is very important to their success and just important and to their um, activities that, as you pointed out, uh, Cindy Poitier and and his and as he relates to Paul Robeson, who obviously uh, was had two strikes against him, I guess you could say, but in particular because of his, you know, could you say that uh, it's more obvious that African American uh, roles tend to be affected more politically than maybe some of the other more typical Hollywood actor roles. Oh, I agree with that completely because oftentimes with black actors, and we're not even just talking about um, the studios in because the studio end is always thinking about how this role or this image will be looked upon by not just black audiences, but white audiences as well. You have the, the black actor as well, who's looking at the script and trying to decide if this is something that they want Is this the role they want to play? And how will this role affect the community? Um, One example I have of that is Sidney Poitier when he plays in The Heat of the Night. And he is concerned. Rod Steiger, uh, the uh, other cop or the actor that he works with that plays a cop in the film, uh, slaps him. And he actually had in this contract, Sidney Poitier actually put in the contract, if he slaps me, nowhere in the world will it be edited out. Um, that I take that slap. It was important for Sidney Poitier to demonstrate equality, um, especially in the times that we're looking at in the 1960s. And so he wanted that image on screen because politically um, the country was dealing with those issues of social equality. So he wanted the film to mirror the political changes that were occurring in the country. And I think that black actors always have that on their mind. How will this be? How will this role be received both politically and socially? And sometimes they pursue roles for that purpose. Sometimes they write roles for that purpose. Um, but I, I don't really see how, and that's why I connect the social, the economic, and the political. I don't really see how the black actor can separate themselves from 
I guess they can look at it as a burden, but they can also look at it as a way to empower the audience as well. But they really cannot separate themselves from the political aspect of the role. And I think that's the case with African Americans in particular and other minorities in other professions. For example, there, when it comes to sports, that uh, particularly in baseball more, the, more so than any other sport, I think, the importance of Jackie Robinson in baseball is still felt today by African-American players and, and other people who understood how important he was and what he went through. And the same thing with other kinds of professions where uh, what came before is so important that you never want to forget those ties. Exactly. Definitely. So now let's let's start talking about some of the specific uh, chapters where we talk about where you talk about um, specific roles, actors and films. Let's go back to the beginning, of course, which is not and not surprisingly centers around Birth of a Nation, um, a movie that to this day is still incredibly controversial in where you get people who feel like it shouldn't even be shown, um, let alone, but and yet it's studied quite a bit in film schools. In fact, the first time I ever saw it was in a film class. Uh, nowadays, of course, you can get it in on you know video and Netflix and other places. But um, what obviously in these early films, African Americans are pre- portrayed poorly, terribly, and in this particular case, of Birth of a Nation, they're often portrayed by white people. Um, how were these initial roles or these initial characterizations what led them to be so so terrible i mean how were the, what was going on in particular that made filmmakers decide that this was the way they were going to uh, portray african american men i'm not sure exactly why um dw griffith and birth of a nation wanted to portray African-Americans so negatively. I do know that his motivation was to promote white supremacy. So I don't know that he said to himself, okay, I'm going to intentionally portray them horribly. I don't think that he really thought he was portraying African-Americans horribly. And at that time, you know, the term was Negroes. I think that he thought that he was portraying blacks authentically from his white male perspective. Um, and one of the things that comes out in the birth of nation is Southern white fear of the black male, um, but also this fear of integration. Because at this time you have segregation, Jim Crow era, um, and you still have fears of miscegenation. And that comes out prominently in his film. And so what ends up happening is that um, in order for him to stress why races should be separate, um, he has to include the black rapist archetype. He has to include other stereotypical images. Uh, for example, um, he has blacks taking over Congress and depriving whites of the vote. If by focusing on this era, okay, um, this idea of liberation of the slaves and how terrible it is for the South, he dramatizes it, but also he keeps those ideas and fears in people's minds. And again, unfortunately, that type of thing um, was so upsetting to people that it actually led to you know some riots and protests as well. 
And I think that he didn't care um, about how it was received or thought of by blacks. I think his very intention was to promote white supremacy. It's clear. And to continue this concept of white fear. But the result, what you have to do to create that is that you do have to exaggerate negative stereotypes about blacks in order to convey that message. And I think part of the issue in particular, I think with Griffith and and the South and the fact that he was from the South, unfortunately, after the Civil War, the and some of the things I've read, you know, in post, you know, Reconstruction and post Civil War periods, is that to a large extent, it was the Southerners who were able to rewrite history or write the history of the post of the Reconstruction era, and unfortunately. That had became, particularly not only during this period, but even going forward till much later in the century, that Griffith's view of what was going on in the South, particularly both during the Civil War and afterwards, was the correct historical view. In fact, one of the, re- one of the re-releases of Birth of a Nation contained an introduction in which Griffith is talking with someone else, and he more or less says this: he couldn't understand why people were so upset with his film and he sort of says this is the way it happened and I don't see any reason why this is a problem so I, it's not a surprise that unfortunately people would accept his view because that was the accepted view exactly and people don't realize how common um, his perspectives were very common um, based on my research they said that he based this film on Thomas Dixon's novels another seminar the Klansmen and the left spots and these two novels were um, very racist novels. And so he really kind of took this concept and he ran with it. And he was very profitable as well because there were a lot of people who actually agreed with the images that they saw. Um, I think when I look at the film, um, it's almost tragically comical in many ways because it's such an exaggeration and it's it's very ridiculous. But at the same time, I do realize that it's painful for some people as well to look at it. And I, I think that the movie has to, it has to continue to be shown as a cautionary tale of what we don't want to go back to, in a way, of what we definitely want to deviate from and avoid. Of course, silent films tended to be over, you know, they had to be exaggerated to an extent, but you sometimes wonder... Um, you know, would would he have still used that kind of exaggeration, given that the way the the blacks the the, the black uh, actors were portrayed, or the black characters, where they were particularly acting, you know, almost comical as you in, in the way they they acted, and simpler simple simpletons almost is the best word I can use to describe them. Yeah, I think they probably would have, and maybe it would have been worse if we could have actually heard sound because then really heard the words that he would put in their mouths. Right. But then, of course, in the next chapter, you talk about how there was a conscious effort to try to fight back against the portrayals of uh, of particularly Birth of a Nation, but some of the other films during that period. And, and the one person that you bring up and that you talk about is, is Oscar Michaud. And I think I got that right. I asked you beforehand, but who was he and why was he so important to this, particularly this period, but even going forward with African-American roles in films? 
Well, Oscar Mugeau is, is quite incredible because he really was the first uh, prolific black director um, of the world, really. Um, 43 films were produced by him, but only 15 of them survived. So you really can't talk about black film without talking about Oscar Micheaux. And so I definitely wanted to include him as the beginning. Um, his movies were incredible because he really talks about racial uplift at the same time. He takes characters, he has black characters of various different skin colors. And occasionally he uses blackface, but when he does, it's for satirical purposes, um, as well as sometimes he actually had black actors who were very fair-skinned um, wear very light makeup to play white actors. Because really at this time, you can't really put uh, black actors and white actors in a film together without a, a certain level of controversy. So he definitely widened the scope an image. Don't get me wrong, he does use villains um, in his movies. And the villains are not just white, the villains may be black as well. Um, but I guess he thought, as well as the African American press thought, the best way to respond, you do have this element of protesting, you have this element of where people, you know, decide to riot. But then you have the artistic response. And Oscar Micheaux says, hey, People seem to be interested in black people and black culture. Let's show black culture, black people, black actors with a level of authenticity. And I will help construct this image. And and that's what the African-American press um, encouraged, that if blacks didn't like the way they were portrayed, they had to get involved, get involved in directing, get involved in writing, get involved in the process And if you're involved in the process, you can change the output or the outcome. That's one of the reasons why I really wanted to bring him up so importantly. And and when we, as we're talking, because while we see that obviously in more recent times, um, he's unusual in, in the fact that when he was in the time period, I mean, the fact that he uh, was doing this at the same time as Griffith and, and some of the early, uh, filmmakers and and that is really it's the kind of thing that people tend not to know about and and really it's it's unfortunate number one that he that he's not well known or not more well known and secondly that so many of his works have disappeared exactly but so did he have what, what in particular did he do i mean i I think you talk about how that he purposely tried to uh, make a film that answered Birth of a Nation, if I read correctly what you were talking about. Uh, what what did he do in particular to try to fight back against the Birth of a Nation um, portrayal? Um, well, various things you'll have in, with, in his films. He will confront various racial issues, um, Ku Klux Klan. He confronts these issues and tackles them in a way that demonstrates a lack of fear of talking about the issues. Uh, One of the things that happens, though, with Michelle that does not happen as much um, with white directors is that they edit his films a lot. Um, So, and they edit it for basically censorship because some of the images that he portrayed made people uncomfortable. 
um, the way he confronted white racism made people um, very uncomfortable um, with his ideas and with his themes. And so that is one of the things that he had to uh, face. Um, his first film that survived, um, actually, it's the second film, Within Our Gates. And they, one of the things they said about the film is that it had spectacular shots of the Klan riding at night with torches. Um, and this was a scene that they did decide to, you know, keep inside, keep in the film. And so one of the ways he combated the perceptions in the birth, birth of the nation is by showing characters that were fully realized human beings, African-Americans that were educated, African-Americans that spoke well, African-Americans that had different class levels. And that was the one of the ways that he directly, you know, responded to the birth of the nation because the birth of the nation, it shows Flex as being very ignorant uh, and not basically not civilized. And at the same time, this was good that Michelle did this towards the end of his career. He starts to get a lot of criticism, criticism for this as well, because they felt like um, he focused too much on educated blacks and uh, blacks of means or middle-class blacks, I guess you could say. Um, and they felt that he was not giving a fully complex portrait of African-Americans, but this is the best way he knew as an artist to reject the black face images, um, to show blacks of various skin colors, skin tones, class levels, and education playing us, playing our stories. That was the best way to combat the black face images of the birth of the nation. Of course, then we can move forward a little bit. And once again, the portrayal of African-Americans, particularly now with a film that was even, that to this day is even more well-regarded, and that's um, uh, Birth of an, or excuse me, Gone with the Wind, um, based on a novel that was very popular, um, which portray, which then was translated into a film where the depiction of African-Americans pretty much stayed the same, and while at first glance may not seem as overtly racist as Birth of a Nation, there's no question that it is still, it's just unbelievable and unfortunately for the time period to have a film like that come out and the way it portrayed not only slavery and how slavery wasn't possibly that bad, so to speak. Um, you know, it was hard work, but they were okay. To, um, uh, to how African-American men in particular uh, were depicted. And so like, for example, with Gone with the Wind, how are men shown differently, say, than even black women? Really with um, black males, they show them as very content with their position and lacking in ambition and desiring nothing more than to serve uh, their masters, so to speak, even after, you know, they become servants. There is this emphasis on their low intelligence and this, to me, is a little bit different because at the time of Gone with the Wind, 1930s, at that time period, and then when you're reflecting back to the Civil War era, roles with women, like the roles in society, were very limited. Um, I think black women and white women can agree that they probably didn't like the way they were portrayed 
on, on film at this time. Um, but for a black male to show him as not really being interested in supporting and taking care of his family and not desiring more out of life than to serve another human being um, is particularly, I would say, emasculating because even back at that time, you've always, really since the beginning, um, black males have always desired to participate um, in the American dream and the American experience. Um, the ambition and desire has always been there. But you have this film, Gone with the Wind, and you just have monolithic characters um, who are just happy to serve, which is not really reality um, at that time uh, or even now. Yeah, and it's one of the things that obviously having been somebody who's watched film my entire life and I have seen Gone with the Wind a number of times and I've actually have friends who generally speaking I you know we get along quite well it's the one subject that I have a problem with is discussing Gone with the Wind you know they'll say things like well you have to look at it as a film and how great it is as a film and and I understand that but it becomes very difficult to ignore the underlying racism that permeates the film and then of course the overall view of civil war and reconstruction and the way it presented as if that was the way of life that should have remained, you know, the whole gone with the, the title at the beginning where that was gone, that whole era was gone with the wind. Exactly. I just, it's just, um, it's amazing that this film basically glorifies, um, the dehumanization of an entire race. And it's hard for me to, uh, really enjoy the flick. I, obviously, I had to watch it again um, writing this book, and I watched it as a child and really did not understand uh, what was going on when I was watching it then. I just knew that, you know, the actresses were pretty, <laughs> you know, and they looked pretty in their dresses. And so you uh, see things one way as a child, and then you become older and you start to analyze it. But it was a lifting up of a time when you had one group that dominated another. And it really makes it hard to enjoy a film that just shows really um, one perspective of whites and one perspective of blacks. I think um, both whites and blacks are disturbed by the images in Gone with the Wind. Well, that's what we say. It, it, it not only deserves, but I mean, you know, it's supposed to say that the Southern Ray was the best way of life, no matter whether you're white or black. And exactly. so, of course, the only Northerners that appear in the film are all scoundrels and bad people. Exactly. Exactly. So everyone got a little taste of stereotyping in that film. I sometimes wonder if anybody, any black writers have or filmmakers have ever talked about sort of what you just said, how Gone with the Wind affected their view of of film and and it's it's a subject all by itself that i think uh is very interesting just because i think because you know and, and when we just had, went past the 75th anniversary of the film and so of course we're hearing all these laud you know great discussions about how great the film was everything and, and i i just felt there wasn't enough writing about that aspect of it that the negatives of it and we it was it was cheered and all these things and not enough I felt there wasn't enough writing about the negatives and how it would be tough for some people to watch the film knowing the underlying treatments of 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 people in the film. And not only that, but the reality of slavery 
really. When you know history and you know what was really going on, it's just really hard to enjoy a, a movie that makes um, slavery or servitude look like something that is glamorous to a certain extent or definitely not that, not that much of a hardship. It's just not based in reality in any sort of way. So it's just difficult for me to watch it for those reasons as well. Then moving forward, um, we get into the period of time that, in this particular case, affected both whites and black actors, but, and that's the blacklisting period of the 50s and uh, going into the late 40s and early 50s when the issues of, of blacklisting, particularly for leftist beliefs, but uh, obviously then there was also the racial aspect. Um, who were some of the people who... Um, actually who who were most affected by the blacklist african american actors and um was their treatment worse than even white blacklisted actors um i would think that if you suffered under the blacklist you would feel like your treatment is probably the worst um but with canada lee and paul robeson um i thought that the way it affected them um probably from the black male pers- perspective they would feel like it affected them more uh, because with some of the white actors um, that were involved in this or white, should I say white writers, um, some of them were able to sometimes have friends uh, write or um, they were able to use their friends' names. And so they were still able to write in a way um, without using their own name. Uh, Some of them traveled outside of the United States and found work there. But with uh, Paul Robinson, uh, you have a situation in with Canada Lee. They actually tried to keep them from traveling. So you have that issue. Um, and then in addition to that, um, you have Canada Lee. He's really uh, going from being a stage star to really trying to break out in films. And he's in these films and he sometimes he thinks that he's going to, like in Lifeboat, he thought he would have a more prominent part. And he's cut out um, of the, the film to have a smaller role. So he's confronting the issue of trying to play bigger parts and wanting to become a film star. Uh, people promising that that is the direction that he'll go in. But then you have all of these rumors spreading that he's associating with communists. And then in addition to that, he's dealing with the racism that's already there. So when you couple having to deal with racism um, And then in addition to that, you have the government watching you um, and keeping you under surveillance. You start to have people that don't want to associate with you. Um, And one of the things that some of this family believed is they felt like um, blacklisting, being blacklisted really led to his death. Um, That, you know, he had a heart attack. He died of a broken heart. So they felt like it stressed them out so much. And the pressure to name Paul Robinson Um, which is why I include him in this chapter as well, the pressure to name Paul Robinson um, is is extreme for him as well, and he does not not do that um, by all accounts. Uh, With Paul Robinson, um, I mean, he goes from, he's a big stage star as well, singer and film actor, um, and he has this um, extreme concern uh, for social justice, And so when they start looking at him uh, and trying to isolate him as well from people, 
uh, you know, there is, and I don't really get into this with the, in the book, but he does, you know, begin to suffer later on in his life from, uh, you know, maybe mental illness. Uh, and so, it, and he started to get very paranoid as well. And see, Paul Robeson was so big, I didn't want him to become the entire book. And so that's how he was affected by it. Um, his career never revives. And then you have with Canada Lee, him dying um, during the 50s, he never gets an opportunity to see his way out of this blacklisting era. So I would think that everyone would feel that, you know, where this happened to them, they would feel that they were adversely affected. But I think that when you're a black actor, especially at this time, you have less access to resources anyway. So when you are pointed out as an enemy of the state, I think it would be much harder for you to economically survive as well as revive your career. I guess that's more or less what I meant before about having two strikes against you. Not only <laughs> do you have to worry about the, the the blacklist because of supposed leftist leanings, but also being African-American in a period of time where, you know, you didn't have, you were still deprived of many rights and you put the two together and exactly. it does make, mean pretty obviously that you that the deck stacked against you a hundred, almost a hundred percent. Exactly. So, but going forward then, now we we get into the late 50s, early 60s, and we're starting to get into the civil civil rights has become more important, and there are slowly but surely, and I do mean slowly, um, yes, <laughs> it, there's, there, we start to see some, some changes in uh, social and, and political life. How does the portrayal of African-American men start to change during this period? Well, really, when you get to Sidney Poitier, this is when you start to, and, and this chapter in 1960s, I focus on Sidney Poitier and Harold Belafonte. Uh, they both were very good friends, uh, both of them from the West Indies. Uh, their birthdays are actually eight days apart. And they're coming up at the same time. And you have Sidney Poitier, who um, is really becomes the, the biggest actor at the time. And then you have Harry Belafonte, who is a major matinee uh, idol. And they are experiencing success on such a high level. Um, and economically, they're doing well. Uh, but at the same time, they are still limited. There's still a limited access um, in certain parts of the country, in the South, and even some parts of the North. And so with Harry Belafonte, he actually refers to himself as saying, hey, he felt like an angry black man. And this is one of the things that really um, made him focus on the civil rights movement. He was very involved. A lot of people don't know how much he was involved with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. One of the things is that he actually was like the connection between the Kennedys and, and Martin Luther King Jr. They did, the Kennedys did not feel comfortable um, speaking to Martin Luther King. Um, and so... Harry Belafonte would transmit messages between the two. Um, also, Harry Belafonte was instrumental in getting a lot of money for some of the marches for the Freedom Riders. Uh, he would raise money, and he would get money from a lot of very well-off people. A lot of them were white, whether they were celebrities or politicians. And so he was instrumental in that. In this, that he very much understood that even though he and Sydney could reach such heights. Um, 
and change images on screen. Um, there were some there were some things that needed to change politically as well. So although Harry Belafonte and Sydney are seen in a very positive light, um, and they intentionally said that they chose roles that showed blacks in a positive way. They tried to confront racial issues in their movies, and then they also confronted those racial issues um, in the political realm as well. And I think that's what I sort of brought up earlier when I said that uh, there seemed to be almost, I don't want to say requirement, but a a duty for um, people who were successful, who started to see some success, um, in this case, like you say, uh, with, with the two men now we're talking about, that they almost had to make sure that they made the most of their um, abilities, not only because of their success and their popularity and their fame, but to make sure that they did something with it that hopefully was helpful to, to other people who needed a lot of help during this period. Oh, definitely. But then, as we go through this period then, but one of the things that you talked about, and you've got actually two different chapters, but they both are somewhat similar in that they're dominated. We start to see films that are dominated by black men who enjoyed initial success in other entertainment fields, such as comedians and then also uh, singers and, and hip hop artists. And what, what, why were they successful in getting roles and the ability to have some control over how they were portrayed? Well, definitely what you have with um, the comedians, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, and then when you have uh, the gangster rappers, as they say, uh, they had a built-in audience. They already had a number of people that were interested in their art form. Uh, not only that, they had reached a level of commercial success and had acquired mainstream success as well. And so producers and, and white studios felt as though we have... It's less of a, I guess, less of an economic risk if we use some of these individuals. Uh, with Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, they were able to get deals with studios where they would be able to produce, um, and as well as if they wanted to direct and star in the films they wanted to be in, because they were able to bring people to the movie theater. And they were able to bring audiences to movie theater because they had been so successful um, in their comedic careers. So it's kind of like one thing leads to the other. Um, When you have a built-in audience and then they take a chance on you with the movie, and if the movie is profitable, you begin to have more power in Hollywood, whether you're black or white. At the end of the day, it's really about making money. It's interesting that uh, the difference is it took a lot longer for the African-Americans to be able, uh, artists to be able to take advantage of this. Obviously, the white artists were able to do this quite a while earlier. We've got, uh, of course, Elvis Presley, who only made, you know, the studios love making films with him because they had the music built in, and they also knew people would come to see him just because it was Presley. And even going back earlier than that, Frank Sinatra, who, of course, started as a singer, but then... Uh, developed into a pretty uh, well-known actor. It just took a lot longer, unfortunately, before African-Americans were able to take advantage of of the crossover effect. 
No, I, I completely agree because although you have Stephen Fetchett, who was a, a comedian on stage at, at first, um, he, and he does end up making a lot of money, he really does not change the social political landscape. Um, and so films really do, don't change um, for black actors because of him, because of his presence um, on screen. And then, like you said, when you get to the 1950s, we have Harry Belafonte. So he has his built-in audience as a singer, but he really um, still is not able to uh, have the same kind of access and control. He tries to in television, and I don't talk about it too much because I wanted to focus on films, And but he still is not able to do with like what you say Elvis Presley does in the 1950s. It does take a while before... Um, blacks are able to command uh, the same kind of attention and the same type of monies as their white counterparts. So then going through, and you go all the way up to almost present day with what you wrote, where are we today? I mean, do you, what kind of issues are we still seeing with the African-American male in film or have things improved enough now that we can be that this is not the same as it obviously has changed from in a hundred years, but, or are there still issues that uh, we still see regularly occurring that can clearly be, you know, looked at as on a racial level? When you say issues, you mean issues in terms of uh, behind the scenes or directors and writers or or everything related to how African-American men are, are portrayed. Uh, and how that happens is, it, you know, between the actors and the writers and the directors and, and, and even this, the um, film production companies that are making the films. Well, there still seems to be um, really an issue because you really don't have that many black filmmakers. Um, most people cannot even name 10 of them. Uh, so you have various filmmakers who still have to struggle a little harder to get funding for their projects. And remember, you know, you have to partner up with others. And so there's a difficulty sometimes in acquiring enough money for the production. Um, and then you have, as well, you have to play, pay the actors who are in there in the film. So you have that issue, um, which is always, it's always an economic issue. And then um, you, you have people starting to open up because you've had some uh, recently various movies like Straight Out of Compton, um, and a few other movies that have people realizing, okay, black films can make money. So I think we're in the midst of a lot of changes that are going on with movies and television. However, the representation in terms of movies or in filmmakers is really still not there, um, not as much as it needs to be. I do feel that in terms of diverse depictions, um, Yes, that's much better. You still have stereotypical roles, um, but you still, at the same time, you do have African-Americans playing superheroes. You have, um, you know, Michael B. Jordan in the Fantastic Four. You have Anthony Mackie playing in Captain America. So you're starting to see, you see African-Americans and their range, the ability to play um, in roles. You have Jamie Foxx, who will play a slave, an or ex-slave in Django Unchained, and then um, in another movie, White House Down, play president. So you're seeing the range, and the range is there. The representations are definitely becoming more diverse and multi-layered. But in terms of behind the scenes, uh, 
I really can only think of only a few major uh, black production companies that are run by African-Americans. And so that's where there still needs to be work. Um, and I think, you know, many people will agree on that. Um, and not only that, you still have Americans attracted to the more negative images. So getting more positive images to be reflected on screen and getting audiences there, that also is another struggle. I'm wondering whether, I mean, you mentioned this as part of what you were saying, that's the pod, the lack of positive um, depictions or, or the, the lessening, not as many as, as, as you really want to see because, uh, like you point out, some of the most popular films, unfortunately, sometimes um, the the people are the actors are portraying people who aren't that particularly good or nice or right, right. positive in any way, shape, or form. Well, I think it's okay to to show uh, the multiplicity of the black culture, and you are going to have black villains. I think that you know we all enjoy Denzel Washington and Training Day. Um, and so I, do, I don't want to leave this, I don't want to have this idea that we can only show blacks in a positive way. Um, I just think that the roles definitely need to be diverse um, in terms of showing the range. Um, with most people, there is this element um, of extremes that we can go either way. So showing characters that can tap into the most positive or negative part of themselves um, is a good way to show that black range and to get out of um, a stereotypical mold of depicting the black male in one way. Well, of course, you mentioned Denzel Washington, and there's no question that he has been willing, and I'm going to ask you if there are other actors around the same, you know, African-American actors who are the same way. He's been perfectly willing to play on all different levels. I mean, obviously, as you pointed out, uh, training Day, but then, of course, there's also American Gangster, and then, of course, there's also um, Flight, where he obviously doesn't come off well in these films, but yet he's willing to do them because he feels like these are good roles, and so they're worth doing. Are there other act- African-American actors that you can think of that are on that same level as far as what they choose and why they choose what they do? Well, Idris Elba. He is uh, definitely uh, an actor that will show various range. Um, he played Mandela. Um, however, one of the things I noticed with uh, a lot of black male actors is that they are definitely floating in between television um, and film. Like, for example, you have Terrence Howard, uh, and he appears in The Butler, and then at the same time you have him in Empire. And in Empire, he would be considered probably a villain. Um, he's a hero, but he definitely is is a villain um, as well. So I'm noticing that there's some black actors that will tend to be more positive when they're in a, in film roles, but when they take on a television role, maybe because, you know, it, it offers the opportunity for range, they are willing to play negative, um, or I wouldn't say negative, but uh, villains, villainous type characters, um, because some actors enjoy playing those type of of characters they actually um, enjoy it and they find it to be, um, I guess you could say fun, but where you take a Will Smith, really the majority of his roles, he tends to try to play positive uh, characters for the most part. Uh, So I think that, you know, the question that you asked, it's a really, it's a really good question. 
Um, but many people would say that Denzel Washington does it be- does it best. Yeah, um, I think part of it is because I mean, your points about television. I think most people believe that some of the best writing is going on in television these days. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it's coming through perfectly or not, but um, there's no question that, be- and I think it's got to do with the number of places that you can. I mean, obviously, on in a movie theater, you only got a certain number of movie theaters. But when you've got as many channels as we have available, both pay and free, and now digital modes like Netflix and Amazon, who are now doing you know a brand new series and things, there's a lot of places for for not niche. I don't want to call it a niche uh, interest, but certainly more wide ranges than you might be able to find in in feature films. I think that definitely is probably what it is. Um, it's, uh, as the space is bigger, um, therefore there's more opportunities. And I would think Samuel L. Jackson, he's another actor who definitely, uh, in Django Unchained, you can definitely consider him to be uh, a villain. And uh, I guess the Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom archetype. Um, and then at the same time, he plays, you know, superhero Nick Fury um, in with the Marvel comics. So he has that range as well of going from uh, playing, he can play in movies, villains, as well as play someone that we can admire and, and look to as a, as a role model. So Samuel L. Jackson definitely does not seem to fear um, exploring his range. Well, and plus he also was one of the, got to be one of the two major African-American male actors who have made it, you know, made a, a splash in the Star Wars films. So, oh, him and Billy D. Williams. Um, so, anyway, then, sort of uh, wrapping up, what kind of writing plans do you have going forward? Are you working on any other project at this point that you'd like to talk about? Oh, well, I am working on another project. Um, I am probably won't discuss it at this time. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to get the contract first. That's kind of how I do it. That makes sense. Uh, <laughs> I, do, I do have another book that came out this year as well, um, uh, Colson Whitehead. And so, uh, you know, he's a premier um, African-American author. And so um, I kind of wanted to, to examine with him uh, the, his post-racial characters and post-racial uh, perspective and how he deals with black masculinity and black manhood and various novels that he's written, The Intuitionist. Um, and John Henry, to name a few, a zone one. And so with these two major projects coming out this year, um, I, I have begun started writing again, but I definitely want to get the, the contract first before I um, share, but I'm definitely willing to do It's unusual for an author to be able to say they actually had two works in the same year and, and wide-ranging. One's film, the other's author, but it's completely different ways of looking at, at your topics, which is great. I mean, nothing wrong with showing some range in, in your writing abilities. Oh, yeah, definitely, because the Colson Whitehead one came out uh, May 15th of this year and then Black Hollywood June 30th. So I was writing on them both at the same time. So um, it, was, it was good to switch my head back and forth um, between, you know, literature and film history. Uh, but uh, definitely both books did have uh, something in common in terms of dealing with black masculinity and its treatment um, over a period of years. Well, I'd like to really thank you for talking to me. I'm glad we were able to set this up. This book was, I think, deserves 
every bit of praise it's gotten, and also the fact of the matter is I think it it should serve not only as a, a, a readable book all by itself, but I could also see how it could be very useful, say, in film classes and, and even um, – Depending on the kind of course it is, or you might be able to, you know, a popular culture film that, or a class that specifically deals with African Americans, I could see how it could be very useful there as well. So thank, thank you for talking to me, and I really enjoyed our discussion. Wonderful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my talk with Kimberly Fang. I hope you will also check out her interview for her book, Colson Whitehead, The Post Racial Voice of Contemporary Literature also available on the New Books Network. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film.